Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I was scrolling through social media one day and I came across a very intriguing book by a new author called Fiona Scarlett. The book was called Boys Don't Cry and it's a novel about two Irish brothers, Joe and Finn, and their trials and tribulations as they navigate childhood, adolescence and what it means to be a man. Suddenly, both their lives changed irrevocably through a very important life event and the book explores masculinity, grief and the importance of boys having strong male role models in their lives. In this episode we explore Fiona's writing journey and a deep dive into the issues the book explores, how Fiona balanced writing, her work as a teacher, the impact of social media on Gen Z and her own children and the grief she experienced in losing her father quite suddenly in December 2020. Boys Don't Cry is a wonderful book and I'd urge parents and young people of a suitable age to buy the book and read it for themselves. So this is how my conversation with Fiona Scarlett went. Fiona Scarlett, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. I absolutely loved your book, Boys Don't Cry, and that's the reason why we are chatting today. I mentioned it in the intro, so for anyone listening, please go out and buy it because it's just an amazing, amazing book. First of all, can you just explain what the reaction's been like to the book and how you're feeling at the moment? Yeah, first of all, thanks so much for having me on, Freddie. Absolutely delighted to be here. The reaction so far has been really positive, very overwhelming. I wasn't expecting the reaction that I got so far, but it's been incredible, especially reactions and messages I've been getting from readers as well which has been probably one of the best parts of the experience so far. Amazing we're going to dive into the book in this pod and explore some really important issues and themes that you discuss within it especially in teaching as well Fiona which is part of your journey too so without further delay shall we start the show? Let's start by talking about your writing journey Fiona because it's something you got into I'm writing saying pretty late as a professional pathway, although you always loved books, you said you lived in the local library growing up. So can you tell me about how this journey started for you? Yeah, so exactly that. I'm not somebody who always wanted to write. Writing was never really on my radar, to be honest. I absolutely loved reading. So as you said, we're in the library all the time. And Mm. I think Ireland has such a strong library culture, like every single small town, whether it's a library, there's also mobile libraries, just making reading so accessible. So when I was younger as well, just reading everything, there was no such thing as sort of, well, there was, but you'd be reading Stephen King, you'd be reading Jilly Cooper, you'd be reading absolutely everything. So Matilda very much on. like in the, uh, at the start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you could put your hands on anything. So my love of reading was always, always there. It's probably one of my first loves is reading. And I loved English in school, but it was only really when I was about 35-ish that I decided that 
I wanted to start writing and I don't even know where that spark came from. I don't remember when I actually decided, oh yeah, I want to be a writer, but I remember having a conversation about it with my husband and I remember being quite daunted talking about it. But straight away he was like, oh my God, yeah, go for it. Just, you know, start writing it. And what are you thinking about writing? And I think as well, having a supportive partner when you're writing it, that is so important, especially when you're coming into it later. Um, it's very easy to give up and lack the confidence. And especially as I didn't have a background in English or didn't do English in college or any of those type of things. So came to it a lot later, mm. but better for it, I think. I think I'm better able to cope with the whole publishing journey because of that. Like I, I, I suppose a bit more wary of things in a way. And I'm not afraid to ask questions either, which definitely if I was younger, if I didn't understand something, I'd just say, oh yeah, that's grand. Whereas mm-hmm. now... I'm more able to ask questions of it, I think, too, you Mm. know. You did music as your undergraduate degree before you moved into teaching and now writing. How did that musical education shape your writing, either in style and prose or or the way you approached it as a mental process? Yeah, so again, music is another huge love of mine. I played the piano and it was only really after the book was published that I realised just how much music does play a part in my writing. So my writing is very much about the voice of the characters and dialect and writing in vernacular. So it's capturing how people really speak on the page. So it's that sort of tuning into, I suppose, the rhythm of language. So for me as well, when I'm writing a lot of it, I would read out loud what I've written and ask myself, does it sound right? So Mm. also capturing, trying to capture the emotion of a piece of music in my writing. So I don't listen to music when I'm writing, but I do listen to music after I write types of songs or instrumental music that has the emotion that I want to capture on the page and again I didn't really realize that was something I was doing until someone asked me actually (laughs) about (laughs) do I think that the music fed in so I think yeah definitely it does. You started before Boys Don't Cry by writing short stories for children at first how much of that was shaped by your teaching or the children you actually taught? When I decided that I did want to write, um, I started writing little funny stories like that for children. And I sort of have a ghost of all these half written funny middle grade stories on my laptop. I'm working in education 17 years now, so I've always been surrounded by that child's voice. The age group that I'm most experienced with is four year olds, four or five year olds. But the age group that I teach over here in Ireland, primary school goes from four to 12. So just very, very familiar with that voice. And also I have two children of my own. They're now 13 and 11, but they were younger when I started writing as well. So they were reading all these really funny books for kids. And I found as well when teaching that for reluctant readers in particular, it's that humour that gets them in. They just mm. love something that's funny, that they can get a good laugh out of. That there's no, well. <laughs> Yeah, and that there's no pressure on them. Like there's a fabulous series there for children. It's by Andy Stanton. It's called Mr. Gum. And it's just absolutely hilarious. And that's what got my daughter in particular into read. And she's a much more reluctant reader than my son. And it's just because they're short, they're funny, they're completely daft. So it's that joy of reading and seeing a child who is a reluctant reader finding joy in a book is something that I wanted to capture as well myself. So that's why I started off with that. When it comes to accessing, I guess, this publishing industry or this author industry you wanted to do a creative writing masters but you were struggling to find a course where you could balance it alongside full-time work and being a mum until your sister recommended a course at Glasgow University 
is that a reality people don't see about the writing world in being able to access it? Oh, 100%. Accessibility, like there are things being done at the moment to move it, but publishing has a long, long way to go in creating accessible opportunities for all. One thing that I found really, really difficult. So when I was about 38, I had really decided then, okay, this is what I really, really want to do. I want to do some sort of course in it just to see if I have what it takes. And if I don't, if if I do this course and they turn around and they say, listen, you're barking up the wrong tree here. I would have been completely fine with that. I would have just continued on writing for myself. It wouldn't have made much of a difference. But I just wanted to sort of test myself. I didn't really have any confidence in my writing voice. And that's where I think I do not at all think that anybody needs a master's in creative writing to write. But for me, it was definitely needed for my own peace of mind and confidence. So I started looking around. I knew that I had to be part time. I knew that I wasn't in a position to afford to give up work with bills and mortgages and everything else. That's, you know, life stuff going on. So I started looking around for part time creative writing masters here in Ireland. And when I looked into it, there was no part-time masters that was actually accessible to me lectures even like it was part-time hours but lectures were still at nine ten o'clock in the morning things like this and also when I actually delved further into it at the time because I was writing for children at the time and when I contacted different masters programs in creative writing they actually didn't accept writers who wrote for children <laughs> so it's quite a snobbery another... attitude isn't it yeah a hundred percent and I don't know is that still the way I know there's somewhat now the creative writing masters that I was looking into were the ones that I could access closer around Dublin. I don't know if that's still the same. There were masters that I could access, which was in children's literature, and they had a creative writing module, but that's not really what I was after. I'm not sure whether at the time, just say if I was writing crime or if I was writing science fiction or fantasy, would that have been accepted either? I don't know. I actually don't know. So I can't really make much of a comment on that. So I was sort of chatting about it with my sister. And as I said, then she said, listen, I think they do a distance learning module in the University of Glasgow. So I looked it up and it was fabulous. All the lectures in the evening time, they encouraged you to write outside what you were writing. So really pushed me out of my comfort zone. We did writing and poetry, short story. You know, we were encouraged to do plays, anything. You were just encouraged to really, really experiment until you found your voice and what it was that you should be writing and I had an absolutely phenomenal tutor Laura Marney was her name real Glaswegian honest blunt but she just gave me so much confidence in my writing and more or less sat me down and said you need to stop pissing about and this is what you should be doing so just start believing in yourself and I really needed to hear that and I don't think I would have written the book or I'd still be writing if I didn't have that belief there yeah it was life-changing for me anyway. Let's dive into the book now so first of all can you tell me about the inspiration behind the subject matter and the characters you created as I believe it came from a a few sources in your childhood and, and, and also a very emotional Twitter thread from a palliative doctor is that right? Yeah, so there's a few different influences in the book. So the spark of influence came from there was a tweet by a paediatric palliative care doctor and he had asked children in his care what they'd missed the most when they died. So the very first chapter of the book, after I read that tweet, I opened the laptop, I wrote down that first chapter and that chapter is more or less identical to when I wrote it down. Like it's probably one of the only chapters that hasn't really changed that much, (laughs) like very, very little changed in it. So it just sort of came out and it's basically like a stream of consciousness thing about Finn, one of the characters in the book, things that he will miss. And you don't really realise that till a few chapters in and it sort of mirrors in again at the end. 
But yeah, of course, it was incredibly powerful and incredibly moving. And the story just sort of came then. And originally, I thought I was actually going to write it from the point of view of the mother and Finn. But when I actually sat down to write it, then Joe's voice kept coming out. So there's a lot of my own dad in Joe, actually. My dad grew up in inner city Dublin and he had a lot of opportunities. There was a man in inner city Dublin used to give free music lessons to children in the area that my granddad had signed up my dad and his brother for. He ended up getting a scholarship through that to music. Then when he was in his mid-30s, he went to university to train as a music secondary school teacher and then went on to teach in a disadvantaged school in the area that I grew up in or that we were living in to try and give back that whole cycle of being able to give others in similar circumstances where he was an opportunity through music so children in his care then ended up with scholarships to music and things like that as well so that whole cycle going on and in my own community growing up there was a lot of drugs in the area at the time there was a sort of criminal drug gang running operating out of the area where we were that affected the whole area where I'm from is it's such a big mix of real sort of disadvantaged areas to really affluent like it's a real mix but it affected the whole of the area really you know like you said the story centers on two brothers joe and finn and you constantly switch between their points of view which makes the book a lot easier to read actually and digest because it's just one kind of short chapter after another what i didn't realize at the start is that they're written in two different timelines before sort of slowly merging together despite your teaching background did you feel any trepidation or anxiety crafting these teenage male voices and portraying that male teenage experience when you obviously haven't lived that yourself (laughs) oh yeah a hundred percent and one thing that was so important to me more important than anything else is that it feels real and that it feels honest and it feels authentic like I a hundred percent didn't want to be patronizing I didn't want to be condescending or any of these type of things and I worked really 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 hard to make sure that it was just the character on the page and not me like I found Joe really really hard to write he's quite a closed off character anyway but there were parts in it where now this is deep into the editing process where I found myself talking through Joe trying to explain his actions away and I went through it over and over and over again to take them out because I was there. That's not something that Joe would say. That's Mm. me trying to explain what he's doing and it doesn't need to be explained. So I found him really, really hard. And it was just so important to me that it came across as authentic. You know, I didn't want to. And again, as you said, I haven't lived those experiences at all, but having worked with a lot of children like Joe being friends with a lot of teenagers like Joe as well it's it was just really trying to I suppose put myself in Joe's shoes from an empathetic approaching it with empathy as well you know and not just a stereotype or a trope I suppose. Yeah it must be really hard as a writer actually to write for someone who is closed off as opposed to emotionally open so I can understand completely what you're getting at there. There's this Huge grief that we'll come to that Joe is going through at the start of the book. It's taboo. It's spoken about in hushed tones. And I really enjoyed how you captured the treading on eggshells type conversation that some men have about these issues. And you did that through Joe's conversation with his teacher, Mr. Broderick. Now, he uses the phrase, if you need me, and it's obviously said from a good position, but I get really annoyed when I hear it a lot in kind of conversations in the mental health sphere because it captures an uneasiness it captures an awkwardness and at worst I mean you might agree with this Fiona sort of an absconding 
of responsibility yeah. that often happens with people who say, oh, if you know, you know, if I'm here, if you need me, it's kind of saying, well, it's on you to tell me rather than me to check in with you, basically. Did you feel a responsibility to capture that flawed conversation accurately? It's sort of a dichotomy there, but yeah, essentially a flawed conversation. Yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of the time I can see it now in education. Well-being is like a buzzword now at the moment and mm. mental health and all these type of things. But a lot of the time it's a tick the box ex- exercise. You know, it's like, oh, well, we'll go through X, Y, Z. We're going to tick, tick, tick. And then that's it done. So even though Mr. Broderick is coming from a good place and he genuinely does care about Joe, it's still okay. I'm after having this conversation now, like he's getting into a bit of trouble and I'm after putting the offer there. So it's all on him. Whereas where was that support from the beginning? You know, like he obviously needs it. I know it's not just unique to Ireland, but support services here are just absolutely diabolical. And I know we'll be talking about that later on as well, mm. but it's something definitely that I wanted to put to the fore as well. Just the lack of services that are available. And even if services are available, it is yep. very likely that young men will not access them either. So, yeah. Exactly. In the book, it's also heavily implied that Joan Finn's father is at least in some way domestically abusive towards their mum. But he definitely has a redemptive arc, which we'll talk about in a bit. Now, this is obviously a very uncomfortable area to put the reader in. It's a grey area. And I talk a lot with people who have been domestically abused. And I talk a lot about these stigmas. Was that your aim to put the reader in that grey area? And do you think actually we're losing that nuance and maybe the capacity for people to have redemption in literature and life? Yeah, I agree completely with that. I don't believe that there's such thing as all good, all bad. I think it's very easy for us to say, oh, they're a complete monster or they're evil or they're this, that and the other. But there's all those shades of grey all the time. And I became a bit obsessed with Dad's story, actually, and it wasn't his book. (laughs) So I had to sort of rein myself back in again. And also, I think that leads to all these mixed feelings that Joe has in particular, because like that's his dad and he loves his dad and he sees his dad in loving terms but also in terms of the horrific things that he does and what he has his family in and because of what he's doing with his life but also I wanted to show that dad was sort of groomed into this world you know he didn't have a family the gang leader in the book Desi took him in when he was 15 so it's this whole cycle of abuse is abuse and yeah yeah yeah, so it was just and again not trying to judge from a writer's point of view like I wanted to try and get that character on the page without judgment and I think that's a writer's job is you're writing a character and like I'm not there to judge da and I'm not there to make a point about domestic violence or domestic abuse or any of those things at all it's sort of snapshot of this particular family in this particular time dealing with this particular thing and I read a book recently it's called The Devil You Know which is about a psychotherapist, I think now, I hope I haven't got that wrong, who deals with violent offenders in prison. And she's talking about that lack of empathy, that when you are dealing with someone like that, you have to approach it with empathy and seeing the person and not just what has been committed. And which is quite hard for a lot of people to get their head around, I think, as well. It's the judgment again, you know. I don't want to spoil the entire book, but the obvious key moment comes when Finn is diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia. There's a lot of really heartbreaking quotes from his side of the story in the book. Can we start with the line where he's afraid to, well, he says he's afraid to give his mum a hug because he thinks he'll give her cancer. How hard was that to write? 
Yeah, do you know, when I was writing Finn, when I was writing, he just sort of wrote himself. I wasn't upset. I didn't cry or anything when I wrote it. I know a lot of people ask me that. And I cry at absolutely everything. Like, I'm a really <laughs> emotional person. But I didn't cry when I was writing it. And it was only afterwards, again, in the editing process, and you're sent the book back to read. It's sort of like in a mock-up form to make sure there's no errors or anything in it. And it was only then that I actually cried at it because I was approaching it as a reader, I think, then more than a writer. But it was capturing that that Finn is real happy-go-lucky, like he's fairly innocent, really, about what's going on. He sort of just takes the world as it comes. And a lot of people shield him in his life, you know, his mother, his dad even, really, and Joe as well. And I think that's something that's really common with children, that you think they know what's happening. You think mm. they've understood what's going on, but they pick things up wrong. So like that with Finn talking about, can he pass cancer on? Like he knows cancer is this big thing. But he actually doesn't really understand much about it or, you know, like how he got it or did someone give it to him? You know, all this type of things. I think that's something that's fairly common with children is that they pick up a lot more than you actually realise. Like they'll soak in everything, but that their understanding of it can be completely different to what you actually think. So even if you're sitting and chatting and doing all that with a child, what they're taking out of that conversation can be something completely different to what Mm. you intended, you know. The most poignant and I think most important quote in the book, Fiona, derives from the title. And Finn says, I heard Ma on the phone to Dart earlier just outside my room. She was crying and I could hear the muffled shouts from the other side. It sounded like Dad was crying too. I've never seen Dad cry. He tells us that crying is a sign of weakness, that boys don't cry, that boys should never cry. So we don't ever, unless we're in private when nobody sees. What did you want to capture here about, I guess, masculinity and mental health? There's such a massive culture here and expectations about what boys should be, particularly from communities like Joe's, but also rural communities here in Ireland as well. I do think, again, that's changing a lot. Like Ireland has changed a lot even in the last 10 years. But still, I think men and boys from a very young age think that it's not acceptable to show their feelings, particularly crying, even with young children that I've thought They'll hide if they need to cry or they'll go into the bathroom or it'll come out in a rage. They get really angry with themselves when they show emotion. So we still have a long way to go. And particularly if you're in a family where there is somebody telling you that this is wrong and probably telling you it's wrong from a very young age and they don't tell their daughters that. So it's something I think that needs to be allowed more but it's very it's very difficult to break that cycle I think but it is hopefully moving Mm. in a bit better direction you know when I was reading Joe's I guess descent into poor decision making I thought of the author Warren Farrell who wrote a book called The Boy Crisis which is an amazing book and he talks in great depth about how crucial it is and life-changing and life-shaping for young boys to have positive male role models the perils of absent dads or absent dads or no dads at all. And you capture that in the decisions Joe starts to make. So the stupid decisions he makes for girls, drug dealing, etc. Is that the point you were trying to make? And how does this impact young boys and their mental health when they look for the wrong types of role models instead? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. So Joe has this massive fear, even before what happens, that he's going to turn out like his dad. He sort of straddles two worlds. He doesn't quite fit in. Like he's in this private school that he's got a scholarship to. So he doesn't fit in with his own friends from home anymore because I think he's after abandoning them and he's this posh private boy now who we can't associate with you. And he doesn't really fit in with the private school world either. Even the friendships that he has. And I did want genuine friendships like with Johnny. Like he is a genuine friend, but he just doesn't understand mm. where Joe is coming from a lot of the time. It's like a lot of privilege there. And yeah, it's that whole cycle. And then when Joe does start getting into those like bad decisions, it's really hard to see how there's going to be a way out for him. And I really wanted to highlight the privilege that we have in being able to make a choice. And at the beginning, I wanted it to show that like everything's piling on top of Joe and it's inevitable what's going to start happening to him. But as it goes on, he's sort of making the choices for himself then as well. And I wanted it to be that with Joe, he could go either way. Like if he went in with Desi, he could be the next Desi nearly, you know, that sort of way. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things involved there, but 100% not having that family support network. And I think that's what I wanted to show as well, that not everybody who's living in a designated disadvantaged area is living in disadvantage and having a support network there, particularly with family in particular, makes such a massive difference. There's another really just heart wrenching moment when Finn overhears his mum and dad talking about him and he decides not to interrupt, even though he's awake because he feared his dad would see him cry. Do you think these are the dynamics we need to change between fathers and sons that when there is something to cry about it's the right thing to cry about not just when you don't get your own way or something like that that it's not punished oh 100 percent. it needs to be validated like it has to be validated i know myself my son if he cries you're like that's okay like that's a completely natural emotion is to cry if you're upset about something or even if frustrated whatever it is and like as i said like i cry <laughs> all the time they're mortified by me crying but that they know it's it, it's not now I know it's different for me like because I I know woman they could be different if you know I was their father or whatever but that it is okay like I know particularly as well with like when my dad died and my husband was very upset and just to say to the children that it's okay it's because like we loved him and that's why we're upset and you know it's it's completely normal to have these emotions and I know that Disney Pixar film as well what's that one called up oh. But like inside that out well. is that the one yeah when, inside yeah, out i yeah. think it's joy and sadness but mm. then at the end it's the sadness that it's okay for sadness to come in like it's okay to feel these things and i think that's what everything with with all emotions that it's validated for children that these are justified emotions because if they're not validated mm. you don't become emotionally mature you don't know how to handle emotions if you're continuously repressing them it's and then when it. you're it's talking about why isn't it yeah exactly yeah. and when you're talking about it, it's important to talk but if you've never fostered a culture of talking how is that going to happen it's not you know the darkest parts of the book come at the end Fiona, and i won't spoil it completely but two points really struck me one i'll let the reader discover and one we'll discuss here which was when finn's cancer is really starting to destroy him he says i wish that they'd let me be even for a bit I wished I could tell them to go away, that I didn't want to be here, to see me cry and scream in pain and vomit all the time now, making my throat all wretched and raw. I didn't want them to see any of that at all, but they did. How hard was that for you to write as a mother and a writer? Yeah, that bit actually was really hard. And it's probably the only part in the whole story where 
Finn is negative about what's happening to him. He's mm. sort of constantly, like he realizes now what's actually happening and he just wants a bit of time to himself. His parents, like Ma and Joe, just want to be there all the time for him, but he doesn't want them to see him like that. And I think, again, it's he needs a bit of space as well as all of that too. And I remember like a, one of my best friends had stage three cancer. Thankfully, she's at the other end of it now. But the biggest thing she said to me about her diagnosis was how people treated her differently. Like nobody treated her normal anymore, sort of walking on eggshells around her, didn't know mm-hmm. really what to say about her. When all you want to do is have some sort of normality because the rest of your life is so shit. And the treatments in particular, I remember she found that as well. She said, I just wish that I didn't have everyone fussing around me like because I just felt so shit. And for someone to acknowledge and say, this is really shit what's happening to you. She said people wouldn't say that either. And nah. that always stuck with me. And I keep trying to think of it from a child's point of view. And particularly somebody like Finn, who's always just going with the flow and just a typical kid. Like, And all of a sudden, he's not a typical kid anymore. All this stuff is happening to him. And him trying to process that as well, you know. As a final question before we move on, Fiona, what has this journey what has writing the book taught you about yourself do you think yeah it's mad I think it's taught me that I'm a lot more resilient than I thought I would be because when you're writing a book you're going through a lot a lot a lot of rejection it's very easy to give up in the early days and I also learned as well about myself that I'm much more able to take negative criticism than positive and that's something again that I didn't really reflect on at all but I am like that as a person anyway as well I don't know is that because of being Irish a lot of people say that it is but I find it much easier to accept a rejection than somebody asking for a full request for the book like I found it much easier when I was going out on submission to publishers to accept that it wasn't going to sell at all rather than that it was so that's something that I definitely learned about myself I think more than anything else we've talked about fiona the writer i want to talk about your own mental health journey now fiona so can you tell me about your early life growing up in ireland childhood teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you had who's the fiona we meet here no i've actually been very very lucky always had very happy childhood very happy childhood memories the usual things as a teenager falling in out of friendship groups and things like that but I think as a person I'm always very self-aware I've always been very emotionally self-aware and again I think I've only realized that as an adult I sort of know how to take a break from things when I need to I know when to step back from things when I need to and I don't really have regrets about things that I did or anything at all that I sort of tend to keep things in the now which again I've only realized recently as well so I don't really have anything like that in my past like I definitely know now again reflecting back about me as a person not being able to say no and being a real people pleaser and Mm. when I actually look back in my childhood I've always been like that I don't like confrontation and not being able to say no and that goes right back as well so it's it's funny when you're reflecting back on yourself when you're younger and how you are now I'd say I'm quite similar but a lot more aware of that I still find that really 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 difficult to Mm. say no and it puts a lot of pressure on a lot of stress and particularly in a working environment and things like that it's like something has to give you're you're not a robot you can't please everybody all of the time and 
I think it's only with age that I'm learning to say no a bit more and to protect myself a bit better, you know. Going back to writing a little bit before we talk about teaching, self-doubt and imposter syndrome is something that you've experienced on this journey you've been working on. And your friend said to you that the only time you talk about yourself negatively is when you talk about your writing. Did that shock you when you were told that? And why do you think that is? Yeah, that was a real shock to me, actually. And I remember someone saying that to me before I was doing something with teaching and it was actually a psychologist who was in observing something. And she had said to me, she said, you're probably one of the only person I've met who talks positively all the time. Like, And I was like, OK. And she said, not even in, oh, look, everything's happy, blooms and roses, but the way I use language. And it's funny because that actually is really important to me. I think it does make a difference in using positive language over negative language, you know. So it's, it's just something that I'm always mindful of, especially as a teacher. So when my friend told me that about my writing, yeah, I was really shocked. I didn't realise that I did that. And she said, yeah, like everything you talk about the book, it's not going to sell and it's it's crap and it's grand. Sure, like I'll just put it here or whatever. And I thought it was me being, I suppose, like that resilient, like what I talked <laughs> about earlier. But it wasn't. It was nearly self-sabotage, you know. So it's it's really strange looking at that. And I do, like I, I still do that. I find it really hard to accept that somebody liked it enough to publish it. I find it really hard to accept that people like the book. I had sort of separated myself completely from the book so that when it came out it was nearly like I didn't want people to read it it is so strange and again Mm. just something that I've been reflecting a lot on recently as well and something that I hope for the next one that I don't do that because a lot of it just passed me by when I realize how privileged I am to be in a position to be published because there's so many people who want to be where I am and I, I completely I am so grateful for the people who took a chance on me and my book and all of those things but I let that all pass me by because I had completely separated myself from it and just said oh yeah but sure like it's people are only saying this to be nice that they're only doing whatever so yeah it's something that I want to acknowledge what I've done the next time rather than just saying oh this is just a fluke. Let's talk about teaching now and this part of your journey through a mental health lens. I want to start with one thing that you wanted to talk about which was the impact of language on children by teachers and the importance of tone and framing. Can you unpack that for the listeners and why is language so important for children and teenagers in an educational context? Yeah, so it's like a bit like what I was talking about before. Like, I really do believe, and I think it probably is from teaching where I've picked this up sort of subconsciously. Like, it's a big thing now, like this growth mindset, but it wasn't when I started teaching that I'd never even heard of that before, you know, positive psychology and all those type of things. It's not something that I had ever heard before, but it's just the power of that words have on children in particular. Like, if you think every single person has incredibly negative experiences of school of teachers like Mm. you know I do and things that were said to me (laughs) you know it's crazy and it's you hold on to that like you don't let go of it and the same way as students who've had incredibly positive experiences with a teacher like I know when my dad died the messages we got from past pupils was just phenomenal it was it was unbelievable the difference that he had made you don't realize you do not realize the power that your words have especially as a teacher and that Every single thing that you say, you don't know what a child in front of you is going to hold on to or not. Like some children might be just in their head, well, fuck you or out loud. Mm. But other children will internalize that and say, well, yeah, that is me. Like I am stupid or I can't sing or I can't write or I can't do X, Y or Z. You know, self-fulfilling prophecy. It's Yeah, it's Mm. so important. So many adults will say 
I can't sing. And you're like, what, what are you talking about? You can't, who told you that? Like, who told you you can't sing? And who cares if you can't sing perfectly or in tune if you're getting enjoyment out of it? Like, I know with young children, four, five years of age, you're doing singing with them. Every single one of them love it because it's fun. And if you turn around and say, well, actually, you can't sing. You have to mime if you're in the choir or whatever. It's all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, I'm not singing anymore. I can't sing. The same with art, the same with any of the arts. I think that gives joy and fun just for the sake of it. You don't do it anymore as a teenager or an adult because you think you're crap at it. And where does that come from? It comes from somewhere. Like, I just think it's so important you have to be so careful mm. with your words with children you also wanted to talk about the importance of not going too far when it comes to academic separation I guess is the right phrase when it comes to school so separating children by intelligence i.e foundation versus higher that was something I had in school I was luckily I was in higher groups for most of it but not always why is that important to you as well I just think it's really important. Like, again, exam systems don't suit everybody. Like, when we were in secondary school, you're cramming for an exam. And then the mm. exam determined on what we it was called bands in our school, what band you were in. And your friends, if you were put in the lower band, basically they thought you were worthless. And the class was just like a DOS class. It's just... Yeah. The expectations that are there from the very beginning, now thankfully that doesn't, it's mixed ability groupings here now for all state schools, they're called community schools here. So it doesn't really happen as much at all. It's all mixed ability now. But there's still separations when you're doing your leave and start here, which is like your A-levels, you have like a higher level and an ordinary level. And I remember a poet, an Irish poet here talking about, he went out to visit a school. One of his poems is on the ordinary level syllabus for the leave and start. Mm. He went out to the school and when he arrived there, they said, the teacher said, oh, well, you're going in to see the higher level group because the ordinary level group won't appreciate you. And he said, wait a minute. No, I'm here to see the ordinary level group. My poem is on their syllabus. I'll be speaking to the ordinary level group. If you want me to talk to the higher level group afterwards, that's grand. I will. But this is who I'm here to speak to. And in that one comment from that teacher, she's not only saying that the ordinary level group don't deserve to hear from a real poet. They were also saying to their students that we don't think you could ever be a poet. We don't ever think you could be a writer. And I have a thing around the narrative of what a writer is. So, you know, they're talking about the star of an artist or you have to be this to be creative or you have to be that or you have to have this personality or that personality. I don't know if the teacher may or not, but I just think that's destructive because what if you're not one of those? Does that mean you can't be a writer or does that mean you can't be an artist? Does that mean you can't be whatever it is that you want to be? And what is creativity? Is creativity like a single mom with five kids and trying to figure out how to get them all to school and feed them? Or, you know, that's creativity. Or is it, you know, again, an accountant who is able to like with maths or whatever it may be and figuring out how to keep a business afloat? Like there's so many different things to creativity and I think by typecasting a profession, and that's including writing, people don't fit in that box. So what do you do? You said there is an increasing level of toxicity towards teachers in the conversation today. Why is that? Where is that toxicity coming from? And, and how does it impact your mental health, Fiona, as, as well as perhaps maybe your colleague as well? Yeah, this last couple of years has been absolutely horrendous. There's always been teacher bashing in media here. It suits the government, to be honest. It's incredibly under-resourced. So it suits the government if the hatred towards things in the school system, if it's the teachers that are getting it because they're lazy or because of this or because of the other, it suits them not to have to resource because the mm. public hatred will go towards the teacher rather than what actually is the issue. And I'm not saying that, of course, there's like 
teachers who shouldn't be teaching at all. Like, of course there is. But in the last couple of years in particular, with lockdown that happened and the pressure and the stress that it put on everybody. And I think the other thing here as well is how underfunded childcare is in this country. So that school is seen as a childminding facility. And I think that Mm. really came about during the lockdown. And I can understand people's frustration in that. But the absolute toxic hatred in all the newspapers, on news channels, from our own Minister for Education, from parents, it was incredibly, incredibly overwhelming. And as a teacher, I did not have a say whether I was in school teaching or whether we were doing online teaching. And I can tell you here and now, there is not one teacher that I know would prefer online teaching to face to face. The <laughs> online teaching is horrific. Trying to teach four year olds on a Zoom lens who also have God. additional needs. Like it doesn't work. And no. families were really, really struggling, particularly families with children with additional needs who were just completely and utterly abandoned. All the services were stopped. Like their physiotherapy, their OT, their speech and language therapy, their psychology mm. psychological services were all stopped because it was deemed unsafe for those professionals to be with a child in a one-to-one setting. Whereas you know, in a school setting, it was okay. So everything fell on the teacher then to be everything for those children, for all children. But it was just the negative toxicity, particularly in the media. I had to block certain words on Twitter. I don't have in my Twitter profile that I'm a teacher either because of the actual hate that you get. If you mention yeah. even in public that you're a teacher, the hate that you get just for being a teacher, or you'll get a joke about your summer holidays. And I went into teaching late. I didn't start. Like I went into teaching, I decided because I really wanted to work with children. It's a choice that I made. And of course, the holidays are a massive draw. It's one of the best jobs you can have for family life because I have the same holidays as my children but those last two years were incredibly tough to deal with like it was just so negative all the time towards the profession you mentioned SEND there and you work Mm. with or worked with SEND children whilst you were writing Fiona specifically non-verbal autistic children how did that impact your work-life balance and your day-to-day mental health because although helping those children must have been hugely rewarding and I used to sort of work with children at a summer camp so I had experience of looking after autistic children and they are a big challenge but can give you some really joyous moments as well I imagine it was quite challenging wasn't it yeah so in our school we have a class for children with autism that's actually attached to a mainstream school and that I set up there was all the pressure that went with that and again I'm somebody no matter what I do I nearly go in overdrive research it's for the children as well I wanted to be the best possible teacher that I could be for the autistic children in my care you know and it was especially important for the children that I was teaching but when I started it was like a shell of a classroom and having to set it up over my summer holidays and again the complete and utter lack of resources from the department that you get I just felt the pressure all the time because there was such a lack of services that I had to be a speech and language therapist, that I had to be an OT, that I had to be a psychologist, that I should know all of these things. And why didn't I? I put a huge amount of pressure on myself and ended up with burnout, actually, and where I had to leave it. Now, I'm still in a support role. Like, I still am on what's called, it's called a SEND team here. I'm still on that team and I still support the class for children with autism in our school and I still support children in mainstream as well the younger children four or five olds who have additional needs so I'm still very much in that role but it's just not as intense and I found that because there's such a lack of services you are the only support that that child has which again is incredibly intense because from a parent's point of view as well like you are the only port of call 
I found that very pressurizing, very pressurizing because I'm not a qualified psychologist or speech and language no matter how much I can do there's only so much that I can do for those yeah. children and um, I feel you I get the same, I found, I the same feelings yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to accept that was very hard but as you said incredibly incredibly rewarding but it was definitely burnout for me mm. yeah I want to talk about motherhood now in relation to teaching Fiona because as you said you have two children who are 13 11 and we'll talk about how lockdown and other issues have affected your son and daughter in a second but first off how has motherhood shaped your life and your mental health? Yeah like I love being a mother I always wanted kids even when I was younger as well I always wanted to work with really young children I suppose that's why I came to teaching as well like even though I always loved the music as well I always thought that I was going to be a paediatric nurse actually I'm sort of glad that that, <laughs> that I wasn't because I don't I don't think I'd be cut out for it in the same way I always wanted to do social work with young children families and again I don't think I'd be cut out for it I don't think I'd be strong enough for it really to be honest I think it's definitely made me a lot more empathetic it's made me a lot more sensitive to different children in my class as well particularly like my son in particular is is a very very quiet shy child and it's definitely made me a lot more understanding of how difficult it is for children like that and how it's nothing to apologize for either like I know on school reports a lot of the time and it will talk about on his report he'll have oh he needs to talk out more in class or he needs to be more involved in it. like he would never ever do that like ever it's just <laughs> not it's just not yeah. <laughs> but it, it's um oh, well, like so was I but like yeah. it's, it's just not it's not who he is so I think it's made me a lot more aware of all the different dynamics and all the different personalities that are within your class and that like to accept personalities too you know it's trying Mm. to it's this whole putting people in a box again and trying to conform and that goes against everything it goes against everything I am am as a person it goes against everything I am as a teacher and I think in sort of a clash with the education system a lot of the time because my beliefs of what are important in education are not necessarily what are important values to the department of education so (laughs) Mm. I just finished reading a book called I Gen Fiona by Jean Twenge. You might be aware of it. And it talks, to be honest, a lot about the American youth population, but you could probably extrapolate it to a lot of other countries, to be honest, especially the UK. And it talks a lot about social media. So with your son, how have you helped him navigate social media in this tech age? And what is your perspective on it as a parent? Because I say so often, and I definitely think this is true, that my generation has been fucked up by dating apps and Gen Z has been fucked up by social media. Yeah, oh, the social media, don't even get me started. Like, because I'm a very reluctant social media user. Like, I'm not on Facebook and not on Instagram. I started Twitter mainly for writing and I have met an incredible community of writing friends oh, through it's Twitter. Great, isn't it? Yeah, 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 that's one thing that I do love about it because, and I, I stick to my little corner, but <laughs> it is absolutely toxic. It's toxic mm. and it's, it's all black and white. There's no shade area in it. And the pylons and the hate and, you know, you'll say something and they'll say, oh, what about this person? Why aren't you thinking about that? It's just toxic. It's not so good I for stick... autistic children, is it? When black and white <laughs> no, thinking. No, <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's unbelievable. And so I just tend to stick to my own little writing community. I just really post about the book. I very, very rarely post anything personal about myself. And even with my writing group friends, we have our own sort of little group chats and things like that. I still don't really post. Yeah, (laughs) I still wouldn't post a lot of personal stuff about myself. And even though I count them as really good friends, because for me, I suppose it's a generational thing as well. Building something with somebody in person as well is important to me too. And not to say I've made incredible friends. I've met a lot of my friends from Twitter in person too. And it's an incredible support. But I think that's the difference now. It's building connections online as opposed to building 
social connections in person and I mm. see that 100% with my son and I was absolutely terrified of and especially with school and everything you see them like so young accessing all this really horrifying ridiculous. isn't it really? it's, yeah. it's actually terrifying like we had a case where we thought that a child was being abused because of things they were talking about you know a seven-year-old and it turned out he was playing Grand Theft Auto that he was given for his birthday. And <laughs> I played that eight like, as well. It, just, didn't, it didn't fuck me you know? up, but still. I know. <laughs> but it's like when, when you're hearing children talk about certain things and you're like, oh, where is that coming from? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, we just bought them back game. And I exactly what you're saying is that my youngest brother, he's 29 now. And sure, he was there saying we were allowed to watch like internet. Nobody knew anything about it. Everything was free access. For me, I know it seems like things are a lot more restricted now, but they're not. If a child wants to access something online, they are going to access it. And for me and my son, I said he wasn't going to get a smartphone until he was 13. And I talked to him, had the conversations. and ju- But just to explain to him the reasons why, because I said, look, even him not having a smartphone, it's not going to stop him accessing something that he's going to access. But I just explained why. And I said, listen, if you see something online that's traumatic, you cannot erase that. Like it's going to, you are going to see that forever. I remember looking up something when I was 19, like I think it was Rotten.com. It was something horrific anyway. And I still like have flashbacks of seeing it because it was so horrific. And Mm. just having the chat and explaining to him the reason why and talking about the dangers of being online and social media. And one thing I talk to him all the time now, so he's, I think his generation is pulling back a little bit. Like they think Twitter is just for like old Karen. Old that's people, what he told yeah. me. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> like all are, the emotions people are like, yeah. <laughs> so he's there talking, learning a lot older than you know, probably double age, but they talk a lot online. So he will be online gaming and he talks to his friends yeah, that way online that's a as well. Noticed, yeah. So it's the comment section though. I remember the first time he got a nasty comment on one of those gaming things. He said he was mm. crap at the level or something and he was devastated and then just learning how to talk to him about that and clicking out the groups and being like, of course, it's still going to happen. But just making sure that there's open channels there to talk about it as well, I think is important. You know, plus I've seen so much of it in school where parents, and I know I'm the same, haven't a clue what their children are accessing no. online, you know? I think for me, like when I was growing up, we were obviously quite bored a lot of the time and we didn't have as much technology as the kids do now. But you know, I, I maintain that I played a lot of video games when I was younger. But the difference between, I think, me and because I'm sort of back end millennial and the kids now is that we all got together as friends and played it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So we still had yeah. the in-person social interaction. We played football, we went out, came back and played three hours on FIFA all together. So we still had the in-person social interaction. So I don't think it was really that harmful at all, to be honest. But now that they're all playing it separately and all online, yes, OK, you've got friendship groups playing all together, but... That's when it starts to come a little bit more isolating. Oh, a hundred percent. Because we were the same. Like it was Mario or Sonic or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And not only one person had it. Only one person (laughs) had the console in the area. You had to take like (laughs) we used to say it was turns, but then someone would be really, really good, so you'd have to say turns and levels, you know. (laughs) But oh yeah, completely. But they think that's socializing. They actually do think it's socializing. We have to actively, like I know it was really hard with lockdown because you know they didn't really have access, but we have to actively turn it off and say go and meet your friends now whereas when they were younger when he wasn't doing that he was out in the green playing with his friends and stuff like that but he doesn't now it's it's all online interaction and he's mm. he's a very quiet introverted person anyway and you're sort of there going out go out go out yeah, go to the shower, do something yeah. like and, and yeah I, and it's really it's really sad because i see it a little bit now where 
you know, we all have a little bit of anxiety and sometimes, you know, confrontation or, you know, a, a really difficult conversation. You always had that natural sort of build up of anxiety. And I, I, I'm trying to get better at it. But I think with the kids now, some of them I hear like uh, getting anxiety over just calling up the GP to like book an appointment. Like that's a natural thing. You're not going to get fired if, yeah. if you can't get your words together to order an appointment. Yeah, no, it, that's a huge, that is a huge thing. It's sort of babying a bit, and mm. I know I do. It's I coddling, do it as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's wrapping your child up in cotton wool, and it's not doing them any favors. Like we're losing resilience. I think we're losing mm. independence, and I think it's it's really strange because for me as a person, one of the most important things to me is independence. Like it's I don't know where it comes from, but it's just so ingrained in me that like having independence, and I can see it there as well with children in particular, like that being afraid, even being afraid to ask for something in a shop being afraid to ask for anything at all like that and it's, it's, um, it's don't talk to a stranger kind of gone yeah, gone steroids isn't it yeah <laughs> but even we had uh, like my daughter who's 11 now and we had a big come she wants to walk home from school this year which she is walking home from school this year and we had the big massive conversation about oh would we let her walk home from school and what if this happens and what if that happens and what about the other like should we be walking home we were getting a bus when we were four like yeah. ourselves were walking in you know from 11 it's, my mum was like yep yeah, you get the yeah, bus this is yeah. you get shown once and then that's it yeah, yeah. there's no mobile phones or anything at all like that I remember we'd be out with our friends for like god knows how long and they knew we'd be back again and it's like that allowing for independence is gone now she is walking home now and I bought her a a Nokia, a real old-fashioned Nokia that just has phones yeah. and text. Because <laughs> I, yeah, because I don't want her having, I don't want her oh to have God, a smartphone Oh God, for teenage yet. girls, God, that's a whole you other know? conversation, isn't and it? And yeah. then it's, but she was getting slagged in school for not having a smartphone, and I was there going. Now she was sort of laughing about it as well. That's one thing. Like she. Well, that's good. To, okay, so she's got that yeah, resilience already, not yeah, to let it affect her. Yeah. Okay. Because it's something that we've talked about a lot and I've explained the reasons why I don't think it's right for young children to have 24-hour access to the internet in their pockets. So I know other mm. people are different, but for me anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, teenage girls stereotypically are, no- are normally, unfortunately, the biggest victims of social contagions and social media is is one of those. So it makes me really sad when I see what's happening to a lot of teenage girls right now. Just on that, when it comes to social media, Fiona, when it comes to teenage girls, I know this is, must be just horrific to try and navigate as a mum now, and I, it terrifies me if I ever became a dad. So you've got, on the one hand, teenage girls sort of getting bombarded with messaging, saying, you're more than your body, don't be objectified, fight the patriarchy. On the other hand, you've got sort of Love Island, you've got influencer culture, Instagram, TikTok, bombarding them with maybe subliminal or, or liminal messaging, saying, actually, you can make your body your career. These are the body types you need to have. Slim, thick, the Kim K or Kendall Jenner sort of types. And, you know, it's a separate thing, but OnlyFans has now exploded as well. So how do you, how on earth do you help your daughter or girls navigate this absolute minefield whilst embracing femininity and navigating puberty, which for girls is just a completely different thing to boy. Well, they're both horrific to sort of go through for most yeah. people, but for girls, it's a it's a completely unique experience, isn't it? Oh, it's awful. We're sort of treading that at the moment, and I think young girls change so quickly, especially mm. when their bodies develop and at, at different stages too. Yeah, 100%. And it's just it's awful. And for my daughter in particular, it's TikTok is the huge thing, mm. and she doesn't like it and the reason she doesn't like it is because first of all she's not allowed I said she could watch videos and we have like a iPod at home that's linked to my phone that she uses so she can access stuff and I know what she's looking at and things like that so I said you can watch the videos but you're not allowed to make your own videos so girls in her class from 8, 9, 10 
making videos of themselves, putting it up on TikTok and then commenting on the likes that they were getting. And for me, I just think it's absolutely bananas. And yeah, and she was a play date that she went on when she was six. The girl asked her, did she want to be on her YouTube channel? And I said to I had said to Molly, luckily that I've always been open about the conversations because I'm so terrified of the whole <laughs> yeah. online thing and self-awareness isn't yeah. it really but at six she was asked did she want to be in her friend's YouTube video who was also six and Molly had said my mom says I'm not allowed to be on YouTube <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus, yes. like, the parenting is working <laughs> but now but now as an 11 year old I'm not sure she'd do that now you know it's different because the peer pressure is starting to come in as well and she said to me for the first time ever like a couple of days ago am I fat and I was like what on earth where is this coming from and like whether like she's not but whether she was or she wasn't it's like it's this whole thing is just mm. I find that really upsetting because I'd be very body positive and all these type of things and you know talking about all like the strengths and focusing on all those type of things but it doesn't matter who you are these things are going to get in on you because this is what girls talk about mm. all the time it's crazy yeah. it's, it's absolutely horrific, um, bananas yeah it's that horrific rise of sort of pro anorexia accounts isn't it and stuff like yeah. that and secret hashtags that girls are yeah. sort of egging each other on and it's a it's a world that i've been sort of unfortunately brought into by knowing eating disorder advocates for women who are talking about this but god it's just a world that i don't ever want to see let alone have to try and yeah. navigate but it's a reality isn't it yeah, it's it's just it's actually it's really scary. And I think it, that has always been there with young girls. And it's really disappointing because it's always other women who want to tear other women down. Like a lot of it's the same with young girls. It's girls who are doing this to each other and uh, where this is coming from. And it's just it's so difficult because no matter what you do, when a child gets to a certain age, their peers are more influential than you as a parent. And that's really difficult. And you're just hoping that they're going to be able to weather the storm of it and that they know that you're there to talk to. Oh, it's it's really, really hard. I'm finding yeah. it really difficult, yeah. There's obviously been a lot of strides made in the mental health conversation, especially towards the younger generation. You know, when I was in school, I imagine when you were in school, mental health just wasn't a thing. It just didn't exist. It was It was a fairy tale or it was something that only existed with a certain very small number of people. But now there's been a lot of, you know, great, positive moves however do you think that because of the mental health content online and the dangers of the negative side as we've seen do you think that it is becoming a sense of children over pathologizing their own mental health where they might not have issues but they might see something or be influenced or something and think oh I have that and self-diagnose and then it's a self-fulfilling cycle of prophecy basically I think that's massive in general and for adults as well. I think like the internet, there's massive positives in it, but also there's massive drawbacks as well. I can see myself even on Twitter how you have to have the right opinion and your opinions can shift and change based on what you're reading through a feed. Life. It's, yeah, it's it's really strange and you have to I have to take a step back from it to say okay is this what I actually really think and again I just think empathy is being lost completely mm. it's everything is how is this going to look if I put it up on here or oh, everybody else is piling on this person so I'll pile on too and you know it's this is my opinion that this is the way things should be and for a young adult who's still developing as a person especially in terms of their views and their values and beliefs being in a social media environment where you have the wrong view or opinion or belief, like wrong, I mean, as in the terms mm. of 
deterrent wrong and in quoting marks, yeah, wrong in quotation you know, marks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that is, I don't know, like that is so pressurized. I don't know how mm. anybody can get themselves through that. Like that's really difficult. Yeah, I, just one more question before we move on. Bullying is obviously a massive thing in boys and girls, but teenage girls, it seems to take this whole reputational damage psyche or method. And I actually saw, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a football player who plays for England called Jack Grealish and his partner was sent like 200 death threats a day and they were all from 14-year-old girls. And I don't feel like anyone is having the conversation right now or no one seems to want to have the conversation about how social media is affecting teenage girls and the way that it's affecting their behaviour. I mean, it's teenage girls sending death threats to this like 24, 25-something woman just because she's going out with a good-looking footballer. <laughs> Like, it's crazy to me. Oh, it's absolutely bizarre. And I know you brought up Love Island earlier as well. The absolute hatred, like toxic hatred that some of those contestants, and I'm saying contestants because it's basically, it's a game. It's a TV show. Like, you know, a little pretty thing, you know, (laughs) their deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been highly, highly edited. And I think people going into that, women in particular, they are going into it saying, oh, I'm going to be able to handle that. You know, it doesn't matter. I can handle bad press. As you said, they're going into it because they see an opportunity for themselves for money or for their deal or whatever. I'm sorry, nobody, nobody will be able to handle the absolute toxic hate that they get from everything from their appearance to them being whatever it is, a bully to being a bitch. I know the male contestants get it too. And even the male contestants get it. The most people who are doing that posting those things are women you know you sort of like it's just I think it's horrific and it's that culture now and there's nearly a culture there now that it's accepted if everybody else is piling on somebody then it's accepted that you're right and that person who is being piled on is wrong and Mm. you feel justified and you feel validated in it because there's strength in numbers and also when you're posting from a screen you're not even you're not seeing a person I remember there was a young adult um oh god I wish I could remember her name now she's about 15 an American I think and she came up with this idea for Twitter in particular that it's a problem Twitter has inputted all these words that are hateful or toxic and if you're typing a message that's just hateful to somebody it'll flash up an alert and say you're using hateful language here are you sure you want to post this Mm. you know that this is actually upsetting what you're writing and it's that thing of you are posting something and you think it's like it gives you anonymity and you can't see the other person's reaction. Like, would you say that to somebody's face? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think anyone, I don't think most people would, to be honest. Let's move on now, Fiona, to the final part of your mental health journey, which is grief. And you've sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier in the pod. You lost your dad in December 2020 and he was fairly young when he passed away. He was 66 years old. If you could just tell me about the man he was, how he passed and the events leading up to and after his passing? Yeah, so it was a real shock for all of us. It just sort of came out of the blue. It was my 40th birthday party and we were all on Zoom. This is last November. We were all on Zoom. We were doing this murder mystery on Zoom. And of course, <laughs> like my dad is just this massive character, larger than life, always joking, always laughing. It's like every this, Irish you know? dad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. But um, he literally knew the world and its mother. Like he was just one of those people. Anywhere you go, he'd meet someone. And he just was a man of infinite patience. Like he had time for everybody. He would sit and he would chat no matter who you were. And I think, you know, after he died, when we got all those messages from so many, like so many people, 
talking about that with him, like he gave me the time of day, especially his students. You know, he was talking, mm. one of the students said that um, they were doing their leaving cert and they were late for the first exam because it was shit going on at home. And he always went down when the exams were on. You know, we'd be making tea for the students and chatting to them and asking how they were getting on and stuff like that. But the examiner wouldn't let her in because she was like 10 minutes late. And she went off and she said, fuck that. I'm not doing these exams. Like, who needs a fucking leaving cert? And she was going out to school. And my dad was out having a smoke and saw her and said, what are you doing? And he, she was like, that's it. I'm not doing these exams. Who needs poxy exams anyway or whatever? And he said, no, fuck this. We're going in. You're, you're sitting your exam. And he went in and he knocked at the door and he said, this girl's sitting her exam. And the whoever the invigilator was mm. was like, oh, no, sorry, rules. He said, this girl is sitting her exam. And he walked her down to her table and sat with her. So that's the type of person that he was. You know, he was just... He was there for everybody, really, you know. So mm. it was a real shock when he died. He got a really rare infection. Now, he did. He had a heart attack about eight years ago. And he wouldn't have been the healthiest either. Like, he had diabetes <laughs> as well. And he smoked like a trooper when he shouldn't have been smoking <laughs> at all, you know. But, like, he lived. As, so he got, it's what's called uh, necrotizing. Oh, God, I can never remember the technical term for it. But it's otherwise known as the flesh-eating virus. It's it's really, really rare infection that he got. And he got a tiny little cut. It was sort of on his abdomen when he, when he went in, he was in excruciating pain. He didn't even realize he had this cut. He was in absolutely excruciating pain and went into hospital. And they thought originally it was a kidney infection. And all of a sudden they realized it's what it was. And it's a really rapid infection. And it actually cuts away at all the flesh around where the cut is. It's really, really rare, Oof. but it's it's incredibly serious and had to be taken into surgery straight away. And the area has to be cut out and cleaned and everything like that. And it puts a lot of pressure on your vital organs. And he went into septic shock. So we were told more or less after that had happened, that was around mid-November, we were told that that was it, that he was going to die and it would take a miracle for him to pull through. And lo and behold, a couple, a couple of days later, the way that my dad is, he pulled through and was chatting with us. We were like, what? We were in mom's in the kitchen and the phone rang. And next minute, mom just comes into the kitchen. She's like, that was your dad on the phone. This is literally the day before we were told it would be a miracle if he pulled through. Like, that was it, that he was gone. And so he went into a step down ward and he was there for a couple of weeks. Now, we were told, the doctor had told us that you know, it's going to be a really, really long, slow recovery. If he does recovery, he has to have more surgery because of the type of infection that he had and his vital organs were already incredibly weakened. That's just typical dad. Like, it's just the way he is. He was a real stubborn <laughs> as well, you know, so stubborn. But it was like his way he, that, to be able to say goodbye. And the day before he died, we stepped down. We were in a full lockdown when he went into hospital first. And the day before he died, we had gone down to, which was level three here, which meant that visitors could go and visit him one at a time. So mom was allowed to go in and visit him the day before he died and spent the whole day there. And he died the next day and we'd all spoken to him on the phone in between those couple of times, even the kids and everything like that. So it was like him coming out of it for a little bit just to be mm. able to go and to be able to go on his terms as well which is also really typical dad as well but <laughs> yeah it was a real shock you know the whole thing and yeah. just being able to process that outside of his teaching life what are your favorite memories of you and your dad are there any favorite things he said you know ad libs or life lessons that you keep with you today yeah, I think the biggest thing is just live your life. But he was full of stories. He loved a good story. He loved the gossip, but he also loved telling <laughs> the gossip and exaggerating it, you know, and he loved a big audience around. So like all my memories of dad are like in the pub or in the house and lots of people around and having a drink and chatting and everybody listening to dad and just 
crying with laughter because that's the type of person that he was and there's a really strong tradition in Ireland of storytelling and there's mm. old storytellers that used to go around town to town telling stories before the time of anything you know telly or any of that and they were known as Shanakees so that's who my dad was he just loved telling stories funny stories and everybody you meet will have a funny story about dad like every single oh wait till I tell you what your dad did like every single person that you meet will have and that's how he made people feel if you think a dad you laugh like that's just the way he was and I think that's it live without regrets live your life the way that you want to live it like even though like he he was very young when he died but he would have absolutely hated to be incapacitated in any sort of a way he was really scared with the diabetes if he'd have to go on dialysis he thought that would limit his life a lot and even though living with that he would have he would have learned to live with that too but he should have given up the smoke and he should have lost weight after the heart attack he should have done all these things and he decided he decided that he he wanted to just do his own thing and that's one thing like there's nothing I think that I've left unsaid to my dad and there's nothing I think that he has left unsaid for us there's nothing that I wished now there is a course like he's with me all the time like of course it would have been I find like with the book and everything like that it's really bittersweet because there's so much a dad in the book anyway and like it's really hard I find harder when there's celebrations because he's not there but like he is like he's always like he is always there and we've so many fantastic memories of our dad you know so we're, mm. we're lucky that way too Mm. was he alive to read the book no no he did see he did see the cover and he knew it was happening and everything like that Mm. and he had told all the doctors and nurses that they had to buy it (laughs) and he literally he sent links to all his friends he literally sent a link to buy the book I think to his whole contacts in his phone book you know and it was like even after like when he when he died and that his friends like Jesus like your dad kept at us to get the fucking book like you know this type of thing so he's just um yeah, unfortunately, no, but um, yeah. Yeah. I've discussed grief with so many people on this podcast, Fiona, and there's a couple of things that often come up. One is that grief is in many ways more stigmatized than mental health. And the other is that there is often a metaphorical ticking clock that other people put on your grief for you to get over it and get on with your life. Is that something that you found in any of those two things? And what other stigmas or taboos did you find with grief when you went through it with your dad? I think there's massive stigmas around grief, exactly as you said. And it's not linear. Mm. You're all over the place. And some days you're grand and some days you're just really shit. You know, I'm really, really lucky. I think in particular, Irish people grieve quite well. People acknowledge (laughs) it. People talk about it. English people don't. (laughs) No, they don't. And I know my sister found that really hard. She's living in Glasgow. And she said, over here what happens like when somebody dies like you all have a big sort of celebration and a party and you're chatting out we were again lucky like I'm sort of grateful for the for when dad died because if he had died the first time when he was told when he was told he was supposed to die if he had died then we would have been in a really strict lockdown and the only people who would have been able to go to the family were us you could only have five people at a funeral you weren't allowed to do anything afterwards and as my aunt put, when he did die, the restrictions had eased. So we were allowed to have 25 people at the funeral. We were allowed to go to a hotel afterwards and go to a bar and have a few drinks. We all stayed over in the hotel. But that's what's normal for people when they're grieving is to chat and joke and have the stories and a bit of a sing song and a bit of a cry and all these type of things. But we're very open about chatting about grief, I think, which is really funny because in other ways, Irish people don't talk about anything at all. Maybe not the feeling side of it. That's one that they might not ask you how you're feeling, but they will chat about the process of grief and so many people there as well talking about 
that so you don't get over it. Like it's such a massive part of your life. Like you, you don't get over it. But everyone has said that time makes it easier. But I found that like I'm still all over the place. There's things that I do now, like forgetting things, like even responding to things and stuff that I never, ever would have been like before, even disengaging myself from people and events and things, which I, I'm quite an extrovert. And it's just stuff like that, that... And it is, it's because you're grieving and it's coming to terms with it and also trying to come to terms with the new family dynamic and how different it is now and loads of different things. But that's all part of it. And again, that it comes in waves. It's up, down, all over it. And I think what you were saying as well about the stigma around grief, like I remember there is a teacher in a school, a local school here, whose husband died really suddenly. He was 32 and two young kids and the expectations that were made there as well about how she should be feeling that she should be back in work already. Like every person that you talk to have had a different take on what she should be doing. And you're like, it's not your business. You know, it's, I think there definitely is. Well, you have, like I know here as well, even for time off work, you have five days if family member dies. So that goes even for a child and you're there going five days, like, and then five days, you're grand, you're back to work again or else you don't get paid. And it's, and again, no support services there. Like you can't access anybody, you know, unless you actively go and access it for yourself. I don't know. It's it's a strange thing and it can hit you anytime. You know, it takes yeah. a long time to process. I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that people don't know who that person is they've lost. So they have no idea about the relationship and they just put yeah. a, blank, a blanket on. OK, five days will be enough because that's what in my head is. Yeah. Yeah. And like, again, going back to like with my sister living in Glasgow, she found that really difficult because Irish friends contacted her and were saying, look, I'm so sorry to hear about that. And whatever it is, just mentioned it, acknowledged it, whereas her English friends didn't acknowledge it really at all. And she, it's, it's a culture like it's just because things are grief is done differently, I suppose, in both countries. But and again, I saw that as well through colleagues and friends as well. Some people can't cope with grief and that's fine. You know, it's that's the way people are. It doesn't affect me as much. But yeah, when very close friends can't acknowledge it or can't cope with it, that's difficult as a person to cope with too, you know. I know you said that you didn't leave anything unsaid, but if your dad was listening to this podcast, Fiona, you know, what do you think you would say to him? now that it's been eight or nine months since he passed and what do you think he would say to you as well well one thing is he'd definitely be saying don't be crying over me anyway <laughs> that's definitely it no I just love to like to be there chatting like having a chat with him again mm. and that's one thing like he was such a chameleon dad like he could be whatever you needed to be in whatever situation that's just again like he's a real, he was a real people pleaser too which <laughs> could have been a good or a bad thing so like, there are times where you could just go and sit and have a cup of tea and have a chat or times when you wanted the crack and you knew you'd want the crack and you know it's just yeah I'm not sure I'd say that's one thing he'd he'd be saying and again just to go and live your life the way that you want to live it and don't hold on to regrets just you know go for it let's reflect on this mental health journey now Fiona before we move on so how have all these experiences shaped you into the person you are today and if you could go back and talk to the Fiona who was struggling to process the loss of her dad not too long ago the Fiona who was contemplating becoming an author you know will I won't I or maybe even the Fiona just starting out as a teacher what would you say to her knowing what you do now Uh, I think the big thing is you don't have to be on all the time you don't have to be everything to everybody like it's back to that people pleasing thing and also to treat yourself like you treat a friend you know be kinder to yourself as well and (laughs) acknowledging that like again like what I said earlier like you are not a machine you're a person and that 
if a friend came to you talking about things in your life, you would tell them to step back and take a break and be kind to themselves. So learning to try and do the same for yourself, I think, is a big thing. Our final topic of conversation, Fiona, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if they have time, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health at the moment? Yeah, it's quite good. But like that, I've stopped work as well. I I took a career break. I was really, really lucky that I got an Arts Council grant. And again, something else that I noticed about myself is I deliberately like to be busy all the time. And <laughs> I think that distracted me as well a lot of the time of, I suppose, dealing with grief in particular. So I'm finding things quite overwhelming at the moment as well. And I think because dad died in the middle of the book coming out as well and everything was just sort of that like that was a great distraction for me as well because I had to get stuff done for the book it was on a deadline like it was being published but it was also incredibly draining like I was working full-time I was publishing a book my dad died and I think it's only now that I'm taking the break that it's hitting me really you know it's I'm finding it up and down at the moment I'll say that's what I'll say (laughs) what age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health again I think I was quite young like I know mom always talks about me always being very emotionally aware and being aware of others a lot like I've always been very open with my emotions (laughs) you know and being able to understand why I'm feeling a certain way I always remember when I was younger as well being drawn to outsiders so children who were either loners or who were the kid always getting in trouble or any of those things like I actually remember that when I was younger you know there was one boy who was always getting in trouble and I'd sit beside him and share my lunch you know little things like that it's just I don't know always being drawn to people who need someone else or something I know that sounds really strange which can be I suppose a good thing and a bad thing maybe I don't know (laughs) when you had the first conversation about your mental health with someone what was that like who was it with did it feel like a part of you had changed or a burden had been lifted or a big weight had had gone off your shoulders or did it seem like quite insignificant and normalized yeah it's only probably very recently that I talked about stuff like that because I keep myself quite guarded, even though I'm a very open person, I'd be very guarded with that type of thing, I suppose, and feeling that I'm burdening somebody by chatting Mm. about my own issues. I much prefer chatting about somebody else's. But my friend, like one of my very best friends, has been through horrific mental health episodes for the last, I'd say, 20 years. She got really bad postnatal depression that was undiagnosed for a long time that led into eating disorders anxiety depression and we've always talked a lot but definitely it's through her journey as well of being able to chat with her and use her nearly as a sounding board as well at times too and that that whole learning to I suppose it's that whole learning to love yourself as well and it's okay to be selfish and those type of things as well so with her in particular I'd say is definitely where Mm. um, I'd chat the most about it. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health so it could be a sound it could be a sensation it could be a particular phrase or something that someone says to you a social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet? For me, I think definitely it's work, stress from work in particular. And more so, am I doing enough for what I should be doing? And particularly when you feel a responsibility for something. And this is mainly with the teaching as well. And are you doing 
enough for the children in your care and again this is not academic at all for me the most important thing in the classroom was giving confidence and having a safe environment and creating you know a trusting environment where children can talk to you and not be laughed at and all those Mm. different types of things and again the pressure of feeling that I have to be because I am always quite, you know, I would be chatting and friendly and I'm feeling that you have to be like that all the time, but you mm. don't, of course, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's a it's pressure a... that comes with that too. Yeah, it's a problem I find as well. I, I always have to tell people I can't be on all the time for them. Once you tell people that, it's like, oh, wow, you're setting yeah. boundaries and they get a bit <laughs> taken aback, don't they? Yeah, Freddie, I think that's exactly what it is. I haven't learned how to set boundaries yet. And I think one thing that really helped me actually was when I did get into writing, is that I had to start setting boundaries because before I used to be on every committee, I did the choir, I did this, I did the <laughs> other, like I, you know, everything. And I did enjoy doing all those things, but I didn't have to do them. And it was when I was writing that I had to start saying to no to some of that stuff because my free time, then I had to write. And then it started to dawn to me then, yeah, nobody, nothing fell apart like nobody was really cross or angry with me that I couldn't do these things and it's yeah I think that's really important learning and again that's something that's only come with me fairly recently is learning to put boundaries in place. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health Fiona or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked and also maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Again, for me, I think the biggest thing is focusing on the now and what's in your control. I've always sort of done that naturally. And I think that is probably the biggest thing is, and that goes for everything, for everything really in life, is that there's nothing you can do about something that happened yesterday. You know, no matter how awful you feel about it, like you can't actually do anything about that now. And if you're thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, you're getting into this big ball of, you know, what ifs and all that. So I think that's a trying to live in the now and then trying to listen to when you need to take a break. So if you are getting overwhelmed, that's one thing that I always do. I never feel guilty over taking a break with writing in particular. So there's this whole thing out there that you have to write every day and you have to do this and there's all these rules around it. Whereas if I'm getting very overwhelmed with things, I know I need to take a break and I'll sit down and I'll binge something on Netflix or I'll do something like that. And that's okay. And I think it's learning to listen when you need a break and again in a working environment that's very difficult because you might need a break and you don't have the space or the time to take a break or you have to apply to HR and they don't see taking a break as a for mental health reasons as important like which is another whole kettle of fish again you know so what's the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health I haven't really read anything specifically like that, but recently I read that um the boy, the horse, the mole, and oh, what's oh, the name of that our one? previous you know guest has recommended about? that one to me. Oh Vegan my Murray. god! Yeah, she's yeah, a big, big is, fan of it. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful, and loads of children's books actually, picture books from children, absolutely hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that are just beautiful, beautiful books and again all about that and accepting that you have your good days, you have your bad days, and again to love yourself and be nicer to yourself you know but that one's beautiful yeah as a final question Fiona what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it I think education is really important there early intervention is key 
you see from children from three, four years of age presenting with anxiety. And again, I am not a qualified therapist, like I'm not. And why don't schools have educational therapists in every single school? Like, why are we not getting these services? And that culture has to be advocated and proper support services in schools for children as well as parents who can attend Mm. if they want to attend. But I think true education a lot of the time is essential. And unfortunately, at the moment, it's a tick the box. So hopefully... (laughs) Things will change. Fiona Scarlett, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thanks so much, Freddie. It was delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Want to say a big thanks to Fiona for being my special guest on this episode. You can buy Boys Don't Cry at all good bookstores, and I'll chuck a link to where you can do so in the show notes and also follow Fiona on social media. I will sign us off by saying, as always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family, tell everyone you know about this podcast. If you're feeling generous, Write us a review. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It will really help us out with those precious algorithms. If you like what we're doing and want to support us even further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to do a one-off donation. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Okay.